Well, this autumn, um, most of you will be aware, we've been looking at Luke's portrayal of Jesus and uh, uh, his ministry in the Gospel that is called Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, we've already seen, is unique in a variety of ways, not least in that it was written specifically to one individual, a man whom Luke addresses as most excellent Theophilus at the beginning of the book. And a little bit of detective work suggests to us that Theophilus was a wealthy, respectable, non-Jewish Roman citizen who'd either just become a Christian or who was thinking about being a Christian. Um, We don't know that much about uh, Theophilus, but that much about Theophilus seems to be um, reasonably clear. By the way, um, James didn't say who the uh, Old Testament character is. You could see his image. Uh, it's Jehu in the Old Testament, um, an Old Testament prophet who gets uh, a picture of himself. You'll have to ask James more about that. So, Luke's record of the life of Jesus is designed to help a respectable, educated man understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And um, interestingly, far from reassuring Theophilus that he can be a Christian without much changing in his life, Luke has begun to tell Theophilus what for, for everyone, but him in particular, is a revolutionary message. Jesus was born to a young woman, says Luke, who was an absolute nobody, not by accident but by God's design and that young woman, Mary, saw that. She sang a song about God lifting up the humble and about God putting down the proud. Theophilus, says Luke, you cannot be proud if you're going to follow Jesus. From beginning to end, God puts down the proud and raises up the humble. At his birth, it became clear that God had actually used the most powerful man of his, uh, of his day, Caesar Augustus, quite unknowingly, to get Jesus in the right place to be born. But he didn't reveal that to Caesar. No, Caesar was just a pawn in God's plan. The people who got God's special attention were a good group of shepherds out on a hillside. Theophilus, if you want to follow God, don't expect to be in Caesar's palace. God loves to work at the margins. God loves the marginalised. Or two weeks ago, in Luke chapter 4, we saw how Jesus now, as an adult, announces his ministry, declares his manifesto and in doing so he quotes an Old Testament prophecy saying the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. If you want to hear the good news of Jesus, most excellent, most wealthy for the Theophilus, you're going to have to make sure that Jesus sees you as poor. Because that's where his focus is. There is not a hint of pandering to 
Theophilus here, there is no obsequiousness, no flattery. Any university professors, any captains of industry, any future leaders who are here amongst us need to hear what Luke says. Whatever our station in life, and particularly if the world magnifies our station in life, we need to understand that to know the living God there must be a sense deep inside of us, in our hearts, that we are poor. There must be at the very root of who we are a deep humility. Because if there is pride, then we can be certain God is determined to put that down and to raise up the humble. So after Jesus has declared his manifesto then in Luke 4, Luke begins to record Jesus' ministry. And he begins, first of all, to sketch out what we could say are the, um, um, the, the benefits of the revolution. We're just going to go, go at a high speed through chapters 4, 5 and 6 to see that. Again and again and again, Luke emphasises two things. He emphasises that Jesus brings forgiveness and he emphasises that Jesus brings abundant life. That is particularly evident if we record Luke's telling of the story with the uh, parallel um, uh, records in Matthew and Mark. For instance, at the beginning of chapter 5, when Simon Peter and his uh, friends are called as disciples, it is only Luke who records that Jesus instructed them to go out into deep water with their fishing boats to let down their nets after a fruitless night of fishing and yet when they do that, they catch such a large number of fish that their nets are about to break and their boats begin to sink. Only Luke records as well that Peter says in response to that, Lord, go away from me, a sinful man. I am a sinful man. Because Jesus wants, um, uh, Luke wants them to see what he had seen in the story that Jesus promises abundance to those who follow him, like that abundant catch of fish. Now the biggest issue that needs to be dealt with is our sin. So it is with massive relief that we hear Jesus saying to Peter, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. Don't be afraid because you're a sinful man, Peter. You are, but you'll be forgiven. And look, Peter, this catch of fish I've created for you is as nothing to what I'm going to do in your life. I'm going to enable you to catch men. I'm going to give you an abundance that you can't imagine at the moment. Abundance and forgiveness is there. Or in, um, in chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, 
Just one other example. When Levi is called as a disciple, Luke makes it absolutely clear that once he has turned to follow Jesus, he gives a great banquet at his house. The rest of them just say he had a meal. Luke wants us to see this was a moment of celebration. This was a moment when wealthy Scrooge has been transformed into a, a lavish benefactor of others. This sinful, sick man, says Jesus, has been forgiven, has changed, has repented and now he is celebrating abundantly. Abundance, forgiveness, celebration, repentance, joy, enjoyment of this new life is just everywhere in chapters 4, 5 and uh, 6 as Luke begins to uh, uh, unfold for us what Jesus can bring. The Christian life is essentially one of reconciliation and forgiveness from God and of abundant joy that follows it. The most important thing we need, the fundamental thing we need, is reconciliation with God. If you are not reconciled to God this morning, then the Bible is clear, you are without hope in this world. It is the greatest loss you could ever have. That reconciliation is absolutely central, absolutely fundamental. When we see Jesus, if we are not reconciled to God, then our reaction is like the Apostle Peter, go away from me. I sense that actually there could be trouble for me. The extraordinary response of Jesus is, don't be afraid. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to die on the cross for you. I'm going to pay for your sins in my body. I'm going to pay as the Son of God so that there is no sin, past, present or future now, that can separate you from my love. Don't be afraid. Be reconciled. This is what the good news to the poor is all about, says Jesus. But we can only come as poor. We can only come as people who say, I have nothing in my hands to give you. Please fill my hands with your love and forgiveness. And he does that. He does that, says Luke, abundantly. He does that so the, uh, uh, the fishing nets are breaking, the boats are sinking, the, the, the party that, that, that we throw has to be enormous. So wonderful is what he gives us. If you are not reconciled to God yet, and be reconciled to him. Because what he offers is overwhelmingly beyond what we could ever imagine. But there is a dark side as well 
to this uh, revolution that uh, Jesus is bringing in and uh, it has been uh, slowly building through these chapters as well. I've called it the the division of the revolution, the division that comes from this revolution. When Levi in chapter 5 there has his party with um, uh, sinners, we find the Pharisees popping up to criticise him. When Jesus talks of uh, his ministry in terms of the new wine, he warns in chapter 5 verse 39 that sometimes people prefer old wine. And Jesus heals a man on the uh, Sabbath and does a good thing. Amazingly, the religious leaders are absolutely furious, says Luke, and begin discussing what they might do to him. And so, this division is starting. And um, far from uh, um, uh, trying to uh, pour a little oil on troubled waters, Jesus decides... Uh, to do what's more like pouring oil on flames. He makes the most extraordinary exclamatory speech, which sounds disturbingly like a uh, a Galilean version of George Galloway. Look at verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. That is how their fathers treated the prophets. But, he says, woe to you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. You will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. You will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That is how their fathers treated the false prophets. If you know the parallel version of this um, in Matthew's Gospel, you will be uh, aware that the point, that the, the the most prominent thing that comes out of this is how Luke carefully records a whole series of parallel woes. Does Jesus hate rich people? Well, clearly he doesn't. Levi's a rich person. Peter was a a, a successful small businessman with several boats. Um, And Jesus has just feasted with Levi. He's uh, He's just helped Peter actually make himself a little richer with all these fish. Now the point is that wealth and comfort does something deeply dangerous to our souls. Matthew makes that point. Luke, actually, simply wants to keep it really stark before us. Luke wants to point out there is danger in being rich. Because if you are rich, says Jesus, your focus will only be now. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now, he says. You will look at the things you have now. 
You will enjoy the things you have now. And you will not have a thought for anything beyond that. Take that on board, Theophilus, says Luke. Listen to it. There is, you see, an openness, a spiritual openness. And really, in normal human experience, only can come through loss. Wasn't it interesting what Ken was saying about the publican who needed, in fact, slowly to lose everything before he was open to finding the greatest thing he could ever find. That is so common as to be almost normal if there is anything uh, such as a normal conversion. Jesus says, those who experience loss, they are the ones who are open to something more. Blessed, happy are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Happy are you who hunger now. You will be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now. You will laugh. God will give you that abundance that he's already been giving to Peter and Levi. So often it only comes through loss. And when we discover that happiness, when actually we find our hearts refocused now from from our um, short-term, tiny little bit of comfort that we're enjoying now, to the long-term, big, eternal comfort and riches that God promises us that trickles over into our experience now, but fundamentally is a promise in our eternal resurrected life. When we start focusing on that in our hearts, it is amazing. Actually, the the privations of now become nothing. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. How on earth can we leap for joy in the face of such loss, the loss of reputation? Here's the answer. Great is your reward in heaven, he says. Jesus was absolutely clear if people were to enjoy that abundance and that forgiveness, they had to have their grip levered off the short-term, minor, temporary comforts of this world. Finger by finger sometimes. So that we can grasp the infinite joy of eternity. And people will be divided he says. There will be those who are simply content with now. And in the long term they will be infinitely the losers. Well that's the uh, context that uh, 
um, Luke has uh, given us as we head towards actually the part of uh, this passage that I want to give a little bit more attention to. This abundant life of forgiveness and rejoicing that has begun to uh, materialise in Peter and Levi's life. This difficult, sad reality that actually it brings tough divisions. Then uh, from verse uh, 27 onwards, Jesus begins to address how his followers should then live in this time of division. What an abundant life looks like in this world where people are being divided. And uh, because you're mostly um, um, well-educated Christians and, uh, and so on, I've gone at reasonable speed through the previous um, um, bits. I think they will be um, old hat to you. But I suspect the most challenging thing we need to hear begins in verse 27. And that is what Jesus describes as the revolutionary lifestyle. The first instruction he gives is to be passionately committed to practical love. Verse 27. I tell you, hear me, he says. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Praise, uh, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop, stop him from taking your tunic. Give, him, give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Extraordinary high calling this. Non-retaliation, non-resistance towards the thief, giving generously, doing good, blessing others. And doing all this, this specifically to those who hate us, notice, to those on the other side of this division that is materialising in Jesus' day. Verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from you, whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Love your enemies. He says. Now, of course, we can protest that no one except Jesus has ever lived entirely like this. We could protest that it is surely legitimate for Christians to work in society for justice and therefore for thieves to be brought to justice and prosecuted. And we would be right in one sense. But too often, I suspect the excessive qualification of these blunt demands of Jesus just becomes, in fact, in our hearts, a way of covering up the fact that we're not particularly committed to following him at all. We don't want to bless. We don't want to give. We don't want to allow wicked people to get away with their wickedness. 
So we qualify it so carefully and so intricately that somehow we manage to uh, just airbrush that bit of the Bible out. This week um, a uh, Dutch group has uh, decided um, they've published a uh, Bible with um, all the uh, uh, bits in the Bible about social justice uh, actually taken out. There are big white um, gaps in, uh, in the Bible. They said in their publicity that uh, um, people are no longer prepared to follow the demands of Jesus in this area and so they decided that they would publish a Bible that uh, takes account of that. Great big white gaps throughout the, the, uh, uh, the New Testament. Of course it's a joke. It's to make the point. But Jesus says some deeply demanding things to us about our attitude towards other people. And he makes it absolutely plain that we will only be able to do that if we have learned what he is, uh, the, the lessons that he's talking about when he tells them to leap and rejoice when people hate them. They are to leap and rejoice when people hate them because there is reward in eternity for them. So again, he says that um, uh, three times, he says, when he's uh, talking about the sort of form of... Um, loveless love that is simply about, uh, as he puts it, sinners giving to others, expecting um, uh, to get things back. He says three times, what credit is it to you? What gain do you get? None in reality. Just the gain of getting what you loaned back. But he says, if you give not expecting to get something back, there is massive credit to your account. Verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Two things he's saying. One is that there will be a great reward, a fantastic reward. in eternity. And the other is that we will have the enormous privilege of, in a small, inadequate way, living as Jesus did, living in a way that imitates God, so that they will be called sons of the Most High. And Jesus said, that is motivation enough. And you see, I suspect our loveless lives so often betray the fact that we are not really passionately, centrally interested in the only investment that is worth making, says Jesus, investing in the kingdom of God, investing our treasures in heaven. A few months ago, the uh, Gay Police Association produced a deeply offensive advertisement. Um, I'll show you a picture, there it is. Had a, um, a Bible and a pool of blood, the title, In the Name of the Father, 
and the text, which I don't think you can read there, says that there was a 74% increase in religiously motivated homophobic incidents. And not surprisingly, evangelical groups were uh, horrified by, um, by this uh, uh, advertisement in that it seemed to imply that um, people who read the Bible are bound to get involved in violence against um, uh, homosexuals. So they protested to the Advertising Standards Agency and this week uh, the ASA's ruling came out. They gave qualified support to uh, the evangelicals. They warned the Gay Police Association. And actually on the back of that ruling I this week got involved in some correspondence with um, a liberal Christian journalist who uh, was clearly absolutely furious at uh, the evangelicals for um, um, their, their, um, their campaign. And uh, after writing a letter to him, he, he wrote back to me protesting at evangelical tactics and spin, actually, in, uh, um, in how they had um, pursued this claim. And he ended it with these words. He said, I wonder what Jesus would have done. And that's the point, isn't it? I think as evangelicals we have every right to protest um, against... uh, um, misinterpretations of, uh, of a Bible and uh, to fight for that in the courts if necessary sometimes. But it is not our essential calling. At present, frankly, the image of evangelicalism in this country is that we hate gays and it seems to, it seems to me that it is a far greater disaster to have that image promulgated in our society than one uh, scurrilous and misleading advertisement in an in inside page of the independent newspaper. And yet so often, actually, by our actions, we feed that image. Indeed, we are dangerously like that image. Where is the image of evangelical Christianity turning the other cheek, loving our enemies? And there are enemies out there who quite purposefully set out to damage the reputation of Christ. Jesus tells us what to do. Love them. Do good to them. Turn the other cheek. One has the nasty feeling that perhaps on this one the evangelicals won won a battle and lost a war. I wonder whether uh, members of the Gay Police Association who put that advert in the newspaper have ever felt loved by a Christian. The uh, Hindu 
author Rabindranath Tagore once said to uh, a Christian leader on the day when we see Jesus Christ living out his life in you on that day we Hindus will flock to your Christ even as doves flock to their feeding ground. See the essential difference between um, Jesus and Muhammad was that Jesus said quite specifically accept hatred and give back love. Accept scurrilous misinterpretations and give back good works. Accept vindictiveness and give back mercy. And of course that starts in our lives as individuals, doesn't it? Do you love your enemies? Or do you avoid them? Do you quietly curse them? Do you pray to God for their uh, destruction but never their conversion? Do you confound their image of Bible-believing Christians or do you confirm it? And I, I know that there is a personal emotional cost in that. It, it, is, it is like keeping poison in yourself, isn't it? When we'd like to spew it out back at them. But you see, we're exactly the recipients of the mercy of a God who kept poison in himself. the poison of our sin and it killed his son Jesus Christ and anyone who claims to be a follower of that Jesus must be prepared to absorb some poison themselves and as a church here as a local body of believers we have enemies and that's not likely to, to decrease I wonder do we bless them? You know I've been told vehemently on more than one occasion that our presence in this school is nothing but a, but a, but a burden on the local community and it seems to me that it is our duty to make it absolutely patently obvious that that is a falsehood Last year um, we went as a family to a street party locally and there was a great big notice board uh, detailing all the things that the local community had, uh, had been doing to care for the local community. And actually all over that notice board there were photographs of members of this church cleaning up litter in the, uh, on the um, nature reserve either because they didn't know or they didn't want to put the credits in. There was no other credit to uh, Morden Road. But people were there. 
And I long to see that multiply and increase so that uh, though it is transparently, uh, though, 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 it is, though again and again it is, uh, we find people saying such things, it is transparently obvious that these people love us. That these people are people of mercy. That these people do good. That these people absorb poison, they don't spew it out. That's what Jesus tells us to do. If we are people who actually are the recipients of that forgiveness, are the recipients of that abundant life that Luke has started to describe, we will be people who give it out. And we haven't got time to look in detail about the second thing that Jesus talks about Um, which I've described as non-judgmental acceptance. But we must notice just a couple of things. First of all, it is our longing for forgiveness, our sense of need for forgiveness from God that drives our forgiveness of others. Just as it is our experience of the abundance of God's love that drives our love forever. Look at at verse 37 um, to, to make that point. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. As we long not to be judged, not to be condemned, to be forgiven by Jesus Christ, as we seek that, of course we must offer it to other people. How could we not? Verse 38, um, uh, continues, a good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured out onto your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured to you. If I want to be forgiven then how can I condemn someone else? I know that I deserve God's judgement. I deserve God's condemnation. I long and pray often for God to be merciful and patient with me as I continue to sin after I've discovered so many of the good things that God offers me and gives me and yet I still find myself falling into sin. Well, if I'm on my knees in the morning praying that God will be patient with me and will not bring me down, then surely I need to be patient with others. I need to not jump to conclusion about, uh, about others. I need to not dismiss them out of hand. Because Jesus behaved like this, he was surrounded by tax collectors and prostitutes and vast crowds. And I long for the day when we will find all sorts of disreputable people coming and going amongst us making contact with us as individuals, coming amongst us as a a group of believers here. Because we know too much about ourselves to jump to judgment on other people, as the rest of the world does. Philip Yancey um, 
in a couple of places but at the beginning of his book What's So Amazing About Grace tells uh, this story story um, in a letter written to him from someone who was working in Chicago a prostitute came to me in wretched straits homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two year old daughter through sobs and tears She told me she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. And I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church? she cried. Why should I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And the reality is, you see, for people like that, For the poor who know they're poor. For the lost who know they're lost. For those who are deeply troubled by their own failures. Jesus offered forgiveness. Jesus offered love. Jesus proclaimed good news for those people. So they flocked to him. A revolutionary life, you see. Life for those who follow that revolutionary Jesus must be a life that imitates him. The question is whether we will.